Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five, and it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today. I am super fired up about our guest. Tell me why. Well, we have managed to score the author of my book club, The Inky Phoenix's October pick, The Devil and the Dark Water, Stuart Turton. I was concerned about that possessive and where it was going to go as you were saying it. We have managed to score the my book pick, The Inky Phoenixes. Are you pleased with where my possessive landed? I am. I was it was it was convoluted as it in my head, but then you really nailed the landing like a little gymnast. Pow. That's right. But before we get to Stuart, Stuart, before a topic that has been months in the making for us, <laughs> kind of, right? We make lists in our iPhone when we think, oh, this would be a weird, quirky topic for us to talk about on our podcast. And usually and while today we're you Netflixing. you get to reap the benefits. The topic today, which we think pairs perfectly with the interview with Stuart because it's quirky and fun, just like Stuart is with his... What seems to be a Northern England a- accent, I think. Apologies, Stuart. We're probably butchering everything. Assuming Stuart is going to listen to his own episode. I'm such an American at first. I was like, oh, he's Scottish. And then I was like, no, he's not. Oh, Damn. he would is be so he mad. Irish? We can't tell. Maybe it's Australian. <laughs> God, oh, Americans anyway, were the worst. Um, perfectly paired with our, our, our quirky Northern English guest. <laughs> um, so we, we started making a list a couple months ago during peak quarantine, although we might not have yet reached peak quarantine, we but we'll leave that for, for another episode. Look who's back. Um, because we were watching so much TV and so many movies, we started making a list of the things that happen in TV shows and movies that do not actually happen in real life, that they are portrayed inaccurately as like a, um, movie scene tropes. Yes. And the, I think the first one you pointed oh my gosh. out. Yes. I in, would, oh, 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 in the, in servant, it was from M night Shyamalamalamian's servant. Yes. On Apple, on Apple plus plus, which is a very disturbing show, but totally worth watching. This is something that happens in all shows. And I'm going to throw it back to anyone who is a fan of the CW, because this happened on Vampire Diaries all the time, too. And it, it turns out, you know, if you're undead, you can just drink copious amount of alcohol and it's not going to affect you. But the trope that always happens in movies is when something bad happens or something stressful happens, 
that the main character is always like, I need a drink. And they go straight for the liquor cabinet and rip it open and just like pound it's usually three fingers brown, it's, it's of always a brown, brown liquor. It's always brown liquor. Yes. It's not like they're sipping it. They toss back three fingers of brown liquor. And it's like before they even say what they're stressed about to, um, to show rather than tell, the main character goes right for the bottle, pour, splash mm-hmm. pours mm-hmm. the three fingers. And then you know, as, as the audience member, you know, oh, shit has gone down. And if it's a really good trope, by the time it's like still trickling down the throat, probably before the character even feels the burn starting to affect the back of the throat area, they've already poured another three fingers. Yes, of course. A brown liquor. If things are really, really bad. If it's bad. If it's really bad. Okay, we have others. And we would like to hear because I think that... We want you to start looking for this when yeah. you watch your Netflix. Because I think there were a couple that we said out loud, but for some reason I was too lazy in the moment to like get my phone and write down that we can't recall right now. But the, the ones that we are sharing with you, we have obviously recorded for posterity. But another one, um, and this this one is courtesy of a... Um, a sexy, ugly show called Away on Netflix with Hilary Swank. And I say sexy, ugly because like, it's not that good, yet you want to watch all of it. It's, it's that kind of show. She's an astronaut, and she's going to Mars. That's all you need to know. Of course you're going to watch it. Kate loves space movies. Um, and is there a spacesuit in it? This is, it. this is a movie trope that I don't think happens very often in real life, is that when someone's in the hospital, someone curls up in bed with them. In yes. the hospital bed. Like you have a California King hospital bed that's all cozy and, and even the if whole it's family a, can get into it. And even if it's a twin, you'll see someone curled up with someone. Like if it's a dad in the show, it was a dad and the daughter climbs into, into the hospital bed with him. I just, I don't think that's feasible in real life. No, it turns out there's a lot of tubes that you worry about putting pressure on and it, and Yes. It, so, that so, one's probably a little too close to home for both of yes, us. Yes, that's true. So let's move on. Um, okay. Do you, do, you, do you remember another one or do you need to, to look? Pass me the list, darling. Dun, dun, ah, dun. yes. Okay. So in the movies, and it's normally like the family breakfast. And here's a little fun quirk about me. I don't like to say breakfast. breakfast. I say breakfast. Breakfast. And that's something I inherited from my mom. And Kate thinks it's cute. And now I'm very conscious about breakfast. Breakfast. I am breaking my fast. That's right. Um, You're not breffing your fast. (laughs) I'm a breffer. (laughs) Okay. So speaking of breath, which is close to brevity, there is no brevity when it comes to breakfast in movies. Because when families, parents are making their kids breakfast, and it's normally before they're going to school, right? You've got like the pancakes and the scrambled eggs, and you've got the bacon. And don't worry, you always have a side of fruit that is like freshly cut and totally delicious. But more importantly, what Kate noticed about this was the pancakes. Yes. The pancakes always, there's always six of them or something in a movie. And it's never what the real life truth is where there's like one or two sloppy ass pancakes that are delicious, mind you. No, they're evenly sized, they're stacked. perfectly stacked, Instagram ready pancakes. But nobody actually stacks pancakes like that unless you are our producer, Lindsay, and she might possibly stack pancakes in a perfectly formed stack. But most people would not do this. Can we riff for a second? Sure. This is, isn't this whole show a riff? It's true. But <laughs> I want to further riff on the riff because I'm going to take us away from the movie trips for a second. And I do want to discuss something when we went to the Waffle House with our friends Amira and Des, 
And the waitress, she was one of my favorite waitresses I think I've ever had in my entire life. She was Mm -hmm. so outgoing. And she talked about how this woman came to the Waffle House once after seeing an Instagram photo. And she wanted to have, make a waffle sandwich. Mm -hmm. So imagine exactly what you want it to be. Like this is, and this is what everyone should be doing with their time instead of following movie tropes. They should be making a waffle sandwich where it's like you got the waffle and then you add the eggs and then you add the sausage and the bacon and then you add the home fries. Yep. And then you add another layer. And so we're talking like a double-decker waffle sandwich with everything that you could order on the menu in the waffle. You guys. And then you cut it into quarters. Yes. Yeah. And then you should probably definitely share that. So that was the tangent off of the pancake thing. And it was basically like, hey. Don't say I never did anything for you. Look up um, Waffle House. Planted the seed. Waffle egg sandwich. And you'll see, because Waffle House, I didn't know this, but you can base, it's, they encourage to order off menu. Yeah, they encourage ordering off menu. It's yeah. you know like the like the like what's the In and Out one the monster style or whatever animal, animal style? style. Sorry, oh. monster animal. Okay, don't Sorry. worry. She's not a West Coast baby. I thought we they <laughs> they only go as far as the truck will go. Protein style and animal in style in twenty four hours, and that did not reach New York. Okay, um, this one we're very passionate about, and passion is a good word leading into this trope is having sex in the shower. Y'all, who is out there having sex in showers? It is the most inconvenient, and water is not a lubricant, okay? It, it is actually unlubricates. the antithesis of lubes. If you want an anti-lube, get your horny body in the shower. It's just going to dry you up like a sad little sponge. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves their vaginas like a sad little sponge. That turns everybody on. Come and get this sad little sponge. Like- <laughs> dry, sad sponge is what I'm going for. Yes. S. But we could be wrong. I mean, <laughs> perhaps this is like a, um, a two women aren't having sex in the shower. Maybe there's a lot no, of having sex, a, a woman having sex with a man. I, I have, I, I have done it all. You guys, I have had all the different kinds of sexes in all the different locations. And it turns out shower sex, pool sex too. Pool sex. Jacuzzi sex is a thing that supposedly happens in movies. And I can't imagine. I, mean, I actually, I feel like if you got one of those jets in the right location, that could be okay. But that's not really sex. That's just like masturbating. Well, I don't know. No. If you have like a jet from behind and then a, a okay. human body part on the other side. We have two more. <laughs> I actually, my, we, we were talking about my, my mom is in town and we were like running this by her and she kind of got into it. She spent a couple minutes just like brainstorming and she came up with the bottom one. I think it's a real one. Ah, uh, yeah. Pillow fights. The kind of pillow fight that leads to the feathers coming out of the pillow? Everywhere. And I'm sorry, but what poorly constructed pillows do you have? Or, I mean, you should be, you know, pitching for the Yankees if you can smack someone that hard and have feathers eject the, into I, the ether. I think pillow fights are great in theory, but the second feathers start coming out, I call a halt to the pillow fight because I don't want to deal with the cleanup. Of- well, and also a pillow, like, even though it's soft, I remember this being younger. I mean, I never had the, you know, epic movie scene pillow fight, but pillow fights did happen when I was little. And when someone hits you hard in the face with a pillow, you're not like, <laughs> pillow fight. It's like, what's up, motherfucker? <laughs> like, you know, that doesn't feel good when yeah. someone whaps you full speed in the face with a pillow. I also think pillow fights are one note. Like you hit someone with a pillow, they hit you back. You're like, oh, pillows, we're hitting each other. And then like you do it a couple of times and you're like, okay, what is it supposed shit, to escalate damn. into? Right, what, what, what next? Where are I don't we know. going with this? Yes, that's, that's the essence of that. So th- that, those are the ones we wrote down. But we're probably missing a lot of key ones. Oh, tons. But we just went, here we are. We are are planting this seed for you to go turn on your TVs. 
Stop reading. Stop thinking. <laughs> stop your walk. You go home right now. And you turn on that TV. Because that's what people need encouragement to do these days. That's right. But you know what, you guys? Actually, we want you to read a book, and that's why we have Stuart Turton on the show today. Stuart, Stuart, Turton, Turton. So maybe from northern New England, England. Perhaps maybe. we will introduce No, not him. New England, England. Just England. Just England. Not yeah. New England, England. You just Americanized your Americanness even yeah. more. And then, oh, and it got even worse in the beginning of the interview, because I also, like, I brought up Ted Lasso and, and tea. And I feel like the English are probably sick of Americans talking about how tea is shit. And then I did that. So I was a trope within the interview, which is bringing everything, I think, tying everything together. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome. It was inadvertent. Tidy. Yes. Don't the English like it? Tidy. As tidy as a pillow fight. That's right. Let's bring them on. Stuart Turton is a freelance travel journalist who has previously worked in Shanghai and Dubai. The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle is his debut novel. He is the winner of the Brighton and Hove Short Story Prize and was longlisted for the BBC Radio 4 Opening Lines competition. He lives in West London with his wife and daughter. You can find him on Twitter at Stu underscore Turton and pick up his brand new book, The Devil and the Dark Water. We are now joined with Stuart, and in my American accent, I am trying to not butcher the last name, Toten, Toten. How to do, Stuart? Is that better? <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, we are so excited to talk with you. Um, y- the Devil in the Dark Water, congratulations. I, uh, I I have not been this giddy to pick a book for my book club in so yes. long, and it, it's Truly a magnificent book, and I have so many questions, but I know Kate wanted to jump yeah, in. Yeah, so, so Stuart told us right before we started recording that he was making tea, and Stuart, this is very American of me, but do you know that we have a TV show here called Ted Lasso? I did not know that. Okay, and this TV show is about an American football coach who is hired by a Premier League soccer club to be its coach. And most of the TV show, the main joke is that tea is terrible and everyone in England just won't accept it. So (laughs) I just, I want to know your thoughts on, since you're making this cup of tea, I want to know your thoughts on tea. (laughs) Well, there may be something in it. We drink a lot of tea and our country's going to hell in a handbasket. So maybe there is a correlation between the two things. I, I can't tell. I'll need to do some sort of deep dive research into when, like, you know, the tipping point, when did we start drinking too much tea and our decline started? And if we stopped and started drinking coffee, could it be arrested? I have absolutely no idea. Do but you... I, I, I should point out that I drink equal amounts of coffee and tea, probably. Okay, okay. And, and your tea, is are there things you put in it to elevate the tea? Or are you, are you just straight tea? No, that's very LA of you, isn't it? That's not <laughs> what we do here. That's... <laughs> We get we get some English breakfast tea, just known as black tea. Okay. Here. We put a bit of milk in it until it's the colour of rust, and then we just swill that back, and we do that about forty-seven times a day, and then we get on. Uh, <laughs> we get we just get on being British at things. That's yes. basically that. Yes. Yeah. Sugar like, though? Are we no, looking no at sugar. no sugar? Never that any was, sugar. That was LA of me to suggest that that would even <gasps> okay. be a thing. Okay. No. See, no. I, I like my well, milky, listen. sugary. Murky goodness. Stuart, I don't know if you have <laughs> Apple Plus, but Ted Lasso is very funny, and I think it would be funny even from an English perspective as well. We do. Okay, yes. well, okay. Well, I'm going to shut this down right now. I'm <laughs> going to that. And, uh... we'll, we'll re-adjourn. Um, 
So yes, tea, which is a good segue considering this takes place in the 1600s on a trade boat. Um, well, I guess Ooh, not tea, the spices. Yeah. Um, so how, Stuart, your background was in travel journalism, correct? That's right, yeah. How did you make the leap from traveling, which sounds like a really glamorous job, and I'm curious if that was, the if case. it felt glamorous <laughs> for you, um, to go to writing novels? Uh, it wasn't a leap. It was a kind of slow amble, I would guess. <laughs> like, I I always wanted to be an author since I was about eight years of age. So that was always the flag in the distance. That was always kind of what I was going. And I became a journalist to kind of get me closer to that because I tried writing a novel when I was 21 and it was hot garbage. It was, <laughs> without doubt, the worst thing that has ever been put on a computer and should give like hope to anybody who wants to sit down and write a novel because they'll never write anything worse than that thing that I wrote. <laughs> um, and it was so I put that in a drawer, sort of figuratively. I put that in a drawer when I was twenty-one, and I realised I just didn't know how to write. That was my fundamental problem. I couldn't write, and I had all the imagination and the ideas. I just didn't know what how to focus it. So, and I wanted to get paid for learning and journalism did that so I went away and became a journalist and worked on magazines and uh, all sorts of things and my mistake was that I loved journalism I absolutely adore that job so I I was a technology journalist before a travel journalist and I worked on lifestyle magazines and I've written, uh, interviewed celebrities I've done sort of every bit of journalism including financial journalism which is the worst but the most important simultaneously and um, I loved it and I adored it and I kind of got lost on my way to my flag in the distance I kind of got lost on the way to writing a book so I got distracted by all these other cool things and I was learning and I was taking stuff in, but it was about, I was 36 by the time I got around to writing a book because I had that much fun along the way. So yeah, it was a kind of slightly distracted way about going to uh, getting a career. Yeah, Stuart, so I read that the the um, heaping pile of trash that you wrote when you were 21, when you put it away, you thought you'd have a, an idea or like something that would strike you that would elevate it like within a couple of weeks or a month and then... That didn't happen until, you know, if this is correct, what I read, that like you were on a flight and all of a sudden you got mm-hmm. hit with an idea for, for how, to, how to turn the kind of Ag- Agatha Christie novel inspiration that you had been working on. And, and that became, I assume, um, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Like what, can you take us through that, that moment and kind of how that played out? It played out with me on a plane at two o'clock in the morning going, yes! Uh, <laughs> And almost leaping up. So it's exactly as you just described it. Yeah, I was 21. I wrote all I ever wanted to do since I was eight years old was write an Agatha Christie book. I love Agatha Christie. I read them all back to back between eight years and 10 years of age, something like that. And they just imprinted upon me. I think they are, for me, they are the perfect light reading with a dash of something else. And the dash of something else is whatever she decides to put into it. If she decides to have a bit of social conscience, it fits in there perfectly. If she decides to have a dash of horror, it fits in there perfectly. Uh, she can put all these other things. And she can write bad books. I mean, I have, I'm not so blinkered that I don't recognise that Christie wrote bad books. But I love them all to pieces. So all I wanted to do at eight years of age was write one of those myself. That's all I wanted to do. And I tried to do it when I was 21. And what came out was just a parody of her. It wasn't a homage. It wasn't anything noble-leaning. It was all of her plot points remixed into different ways and all of her tropes. 
but there was nothing to spin them. There was nothing to change them. They were laid out exactly as you would have expected them to be laid out, and then they took you exactly where you think they would take you. So it was just bad, and it was also badly written. So it was a bad piece of plotting. It was a bad piece of writing written by a bad person. Uh, <laughs> oh my, this wow. is so Who's very made? English of you. <laughs> the humility. Yeah. Pause for a sip of tea. Pause for a sip of tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm actually t- sipping tea as well. It's terrible. <laughs> so obvious. We've only been at this for about eight minutes. I know. Uh, so yeah, and it was exactly as you said. I then. I didn't know how to write it, so I had to go and solve that problem. And I honestly thought that I would work out what was missing from it, what that original idea was, because I realized that she always had an original idea. There was always some point to her novels that was, you know, like who the murderer could be. What What's a high concept hook that she could stick on it? Or narratively, she'd do something interesting. So I thought I would get, as you said, I thought I would get that so quickly. I just, that she'd written 60 odd of them, so I thought it can't be that hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it took me, it took me 12 years or something, 13 years. And it turns out that Agatha Christie, that selfish, horrible woman, had written all the best Agatha Christie books. Can you believe that? <laughs> so she'd like, she'd rinsed the she'd genre She'd left nothing dry. for you. There was nothing. There was not a crumb on the table for me. There was nothing. She ate it all up and used it all. And um, so it generally was, it was a really tricky thing to go and try and write something that feels very Agatha Christie but then feels like something she perhaps wouldn't have written, but also has a unique idea as its centre. And thankfully, in the intervening time, someone made Groundhog Day and solved my problem for me. Ooh, <laughs> the, yeah. Bill Murray went ahead and made that for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if he hadn't done that and Quantum Leap hadn't been made, I don't get to write a book. I genuinely believe that. I needed those two things to be been made. So the 80s pretty much saved my bacon. since agatha christie it sounds like virtually gobbled up all of the agatha christie goodness with the exception of evelyn hardcastle she kind of wiggled her way in there was that part of the reason why with devil in the dark water you i mean you definitely had your ode to sherlock i mean we have the 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 character of sammy and arendt uh, with the, the sherlock and watson kind of mirroring action going on was did you was that because you were just like I, I won't ever try to to do an homage to Agatha Christie again so I'm going to move over to Sherlock or was there any connection there it's really complicated like I'm trying to come up with some really pithy way of telling this story for future interviews so I sound like cool and like I've got a plan and stuff <laughs> but it wasn't so I started off not wanting to ever do anything like seven deaths ever again sorry seven and a half deaths for the US mm. um, yep. just because it's you know, it destroyed my brain for three years writing that book. It was a really difficult task, and I didn't want to do it again. And I didn't want to be known as the guy who does the eight de- deaths or the nine deaths or the ten and a half deaths of Evelyn. Like, I didn't want to be that author. I want, if I'm to have any sort of career, I want it to be based on the idea that you never quite know what book you're going to get out of me and where it's going to be set and what the characters will be. I want it always to keep changing. And that's a lovely challenge for me as an author. That's what keeps me interested. So I started with that, and then I had, I'd been in a maritime museum in Perth when I was 23, because I just travel, my entire life's about traveling, and I always try to be away from home as much as possible. And so when I was 23, I backpacked around Australia for a year, I missed my flight out of, I'm stupid, I'm so stupid, (laughs) I 
was supposed to be flying out of Australia on this particular day. I made my way across Australia, which is no small country, mm-hmm. to Perth, which is, which is where I was flying out of, except I wasn't flying out of Perth. I was flying out of Darwin, which is 5,000 miles away. And I wasn't even flying out of Perth on that day. I was flying out of Darwin, sorry, the next day. So I not only got the, <laughs> on the wrong day and missed my flight, I got to the wrong city and missed my flight. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm an idiot in every conceivable metric. So I ended up, killing time waiting for my next flight and I went to the Maritime Museum and they had this amazing exhibition about a shipwreck called the Batavia which is truly brutal my friends and I highly recommend everyone just goes and reads about it because it's a genuinely heartbreaking horrible story that perfectly illuminates this period in history and what it was actually about but just as a very quick recap without all of the horrible bits this ship the Batavia was sailing it was on its way to it was it left amsterdam it was seven months into its voyage it was a month away from reaching jakarta and it got shipwrecked off the coast of australia except these were uncharted waters then so they had no idea where they were the captain about 200 people get off the boat survive the wreck the captain goes off to get help and unbeknownst to him he leaves the survivors in the hands of a psychopath mm. uh it's and it takes him about a month and a half. And when he comes, the captain, that is, when the captain comes back after a month and a half, 125 people have been murdered by the psychopath and his cohorts. Um, and, and worse, you can imagine the worst, given the period and the fact that there was female passengers on board. Oh. It was, it was, it's a horrific story and it burrowed in deep. So when I was 23, I mean, I'm 40 now. So I wrote, I started writing Devil when I was 39, uh, 38, I'm sorry. So it burrowed in deep for that length of time and it stuck with me. So yeah, sorry, it's like a, it's a messy explanation, but when I start to think about how I didn't want to write seven deaths again, this was the setting that I wanted, but I didn't want that story. That story is too brutal. If I wrote that 10 mm-hmm. pages and slit your throat and like the massive. <laughs> and then where would we be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it would, it would make the news. So it would have at least a bit of, but it was, it was too brutal. I didn't want that. But what I wanted was the ship because the ships were amazing. And the courage of the people who got on the ships and the company that set these ships to sail and what it expected. Because it was just it was just Amazon, but even more brutal. Like it didn't care. One in three people who got on these ships would die. Mm. Um, they would never come back to the Netherlands. And they knew it. They would die of disease. They would die of a shipboard accident. They would fall overboard. Piracy would get them. Storms would get them. Or they'd actually make it to the East Indies and drink themselves to death or die of malaria. So one in three, everybody just died. And the company knew it and thought that was a small price to pay for the profits they were making. So all of this stuff is brilliant and wonderful. Um, ships in 1629 which, and 1634, sorry, when this book is set, are haunted houses at sea. It's, they just are. They're just filled with tension and ghosts and the scurry and terrifying. And there's so much just built in terror to those settings. So, yeah. So I wanted a boat and I wanted a mystery. And it didn't feel like an Agatha Christie style mystery because Poirot would never get on a boat like this. It felt like a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> mystery. Yeah. Um, then, I'm sorry, I'm a word I've been talking for ages, but. No, keep going. We love it. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, I. I I so when I finished reading all my Agatha Christie's and loved them, I moved on to Sherlock Holmes, and I read all of those. I'm one of those obsessive completionist readers, so I read if I find an author I love, I'll just read their books back to back. Um, and I did this with Conan Doyle when I was about ten or eleven, and I read all of the Sherlock Holmes novels, 
and I like the adventure and I hated Sherlock Holmes. I think mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes is an absolute tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way, unrepentantly a tool all the way through his novels from first to last. And everyone runs around saying he's a hero and he's brilliant. And he's not. He never solves a mystery that helps anybody. He solves them for his own intellectual curiosity. And if people get helped, that's a fun side product. Um, and he's got Watson, who is a lovely human being, a doctor, a war hero, but also gets treated like an imbecile until at some point in the novels you see his character switch and he generally begins to believe he is an imbecile. You've got Inspector Lestrade, who's the head of the foremost policing unit in the world at that point, Scotland Yard. And again, another moron couldn't find a cat up a tree. So it's bewildering. These characters were brilliant and the stories bewildered me. And I like the sense of adventure. I hate Sherlock Holmes. So I write books now so I can fix that. So I, I made a Sherlock Holmes type Watson relationship and then just humbled the Holmes character and elevated the sidekicks. And that was kind of the start of all this. And then all you've got to do is work out the rest of the characters and the plot and the plot twists and the resolution and what the actual evidence is going on. Yeah, you know, I'm three months of planning and you're there. Well, speaking of planning, you, I had read that for, for Evelyn, you spent three, four months and however many spreadsheets be, because of the time <laughs> element of that book. was What was your like pre-writing process like for Devil or did you jump right into the writing? No, I used exactly the same method because it worked for Evelyn and I was a bit superstitious about it, I guess. And I wanted Evelyn... What was weird is I wanted to write a book that was completely different to Evelyn, but I wanted a book that felt like me. It felt, I wanted it to be clever. I wanted it to be intricate. I wanted it to feel as, I don't know. I wanted it to be as tactile, if that's the right word. Like I, I want my books to sort of swallow you up and for you to feel like you're in them, that you're in that place. You can put your hand out and touch the rope and feel the sea spray Mm -hmm. in your face. In Evelyn, you could feel the tension of the house and, you could feel the threat of the footman and the weirdness of the plague doctor, and you could hear the wrinkling of the clothes. I like those details, and I want readers to feel those details. So I'm, I take a long time getting those right. So I, and I, as I say, I wanted the intricacy. So I spent the same three months, but with this one, it's a lot more historical research. So I took the three months to also travel. So I went out to Amsterdam. They've rebuilt the boat, which this is set on the one that was wrecked they've rebuilt that i've done a replica of it i should say and i spent two days walking around that and exploring that mm. and that was amazing that and we went out to an yeah it's wonderful wow that's I, so we, cool yeah and that's in amsterdam because i want to go i know i want to go i'm marking that yeah. down yeah it's in a port town <laughs> called lillestad just outside of amsterdam okay. it's about a 40 minute drive and it's just a phenomenal place to be and uh, so I just pestered them with questions and sort of, and that sense of claustrophobia that's in Devil, it all comes from that trip because <laughs> I'm, I am six foot two and the boat feels like it's five foot 11. Yeah. It's just the smallest, it's cramped. It's, oh, it was really, and there was only about 25, 30 visitors that day I was there and it already felt super packed and, you know, you would get it on everyone's nerves just by walking around and these boats would have had nearly 300 people on them. Yeah, so the way you described Sammy's room, for lack of a better word, I don't even think it was room. It was kind of a, a wedge in a wall where a human could technically fit. Gave, <laughs> gave me anxiety reading that. And, and uh, I love hearing what you want the readers to experience because you very, I very much experienced that reading your book, like feeling very much like I was on the ship. And even when Kate and I would be walking our dogs, I was like, it's just been a long time since I've read a book 
that when I put it down, I'm still living in the world in my head when I'm out oh, of the house. Um, and uh, with all the, the research that you did for this book, because I, I love period piece novels. It's one of my historical fiction style is one of my favorites. But I always, mm. as a writer myself, get very intimidated with how would, could you create a world that is so foreign from the one that we live in? Um, mm. And one of the, the old Tom myth that you injected into this story is so rich and, and so mm. creepy and it's going to stay with me forever. And I was just, is that based on actual lore that you found in your, your research? Like how did that uh, character come to be? Oh, that's really interesting. So there was a ton of research in this. I knew from the beginning that I wanted a demon as a suspect. And that seems like quite a strange, but it was part Such of the Such a good line. Con- yeah. <laughs> There's the soundbite. <laughs> it was the kind of like, I guess that was the conceit behind the novel right at the beginning that I wanted it to be supernatural, but not supernatural in the way that, you know, there's your obvious threat, go and tackle it. But this is a murder mystery novel. So I wanted, yeah, as I just said, amongst the, all the possible suspects, one of them to be a demon. And for that to be dealt with. And there's only two ways you can do that. You either end up winking at it slightly and not playing it seriously, or you make it part of the genre of the book so that the reader, when they're reading it, the mystery just isn't like what's going on on board this ship and who did these crimes. But is this a horror novel or is it actually a mystery novel? Like, what am I actually reading? Which way? So that you can have some doubt about the resolution. Because if it's too much just straight up a mystery novel, you know there's not going to be a demon at the end of it. And if it's too much a horror, then you're not really invested in the mystery of it because you're pretty mm-hmm. sure the demon did it. So I wanted to walk that tightrope. That one, that was supposed to be the sort of the narrative challenge for me as I was writing it, to try and keep the reader in suspense as long as I could about what was actually happening on this boat. And to do that, I kept escalating the sort of seemingly supernatural elements of the book um, and kept like dialing those up so it got more and more impossible. And I loved doing that. That was really good fun. Um, and now I've completely forgotten what your original question was while I was wrapping oh, up. Oh, Tom, if that was an actual oh, myth yeah. that you found or how I just want to hear the origin of that lore. Yeah, so there was. So while I was researching the period, I knew I wanted a demon and I went looking for, I went, I researched demonology. So I went and took a 20 pound. Fun. <laughs> I, went to, I paid 20 pounds to do a demon course online, which is what they teach you. This is true. They teach you how to spot demons. Wait, I um, want to take that course too. <laughs> it's wonderful. Just honestly, just go online and it's it's like demon uh, demon hunting course, demon identifying course. And it was 20, 20 UK pounds. And I think it would have been a US site. In fact, not to, you know, not to damn your people at all, but it was almost certainly a, a US site. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, you do it and they send you a bunch of materials about spotting and identifying demons around you. And it basically is your, you know, your awful boss is probably a demon is <laughs> yeah. what it comes down to. But so I did loads of strange things. So I went and did that. And then I discovered that King James back in this period had written, he was very invested in uh, demons and witches generally believed in all. And he wrote, a thing called the Demonologica, which makes its way into the story. And this was this was a book of knowledge that they treated almost like the Bible. It was it was all about demons, it was all about devils, it was all about their hierarchies, who was closest to Satan in the hierarchies of hell, mm-hmm. how they sort of you know possessed mankind, how they tempted them, how they could be banished, who reported to whom. Really interesting stuff, but comprehensive, like to the point where like 
you're reading it and it begins to make a kind of logical sense. You're kind of like, oh yeah, but of course Astaroth would be afraid of <laughs> like the, and, um so yeah, and I've just named him. So amongst the demons I ended up reading about was a demon called Astaroth the Inquisitor. And Astaroth the Inquisitor, his MO was that he would just ask people very awkward questions that had devastating answers. And mm-hmm. that felt just <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? So I fell in love with that idea. So I took that as the kernel of old Tom and then spun the rest of the myth around it. Because I thought if I used Astaroth straight up, I was I was bringing too much horror into it. I was bringing real-life horror into my book, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to maintain a sort of veneer of fictionalism between it, even though it is obviously all fictional, and sort of give myself creative room to spin my own myth and spin its own yeah. history and take it off when I needed to. So yeah, that's kind of how we came about. And then I just had so much fun doing it that every time I needed, you know, my old Tom to have a new characteristic, I could just throw it into the mix and just watch the entire book go nuts around it. It's great. That's so smart naming him old Tom instead of an actual demonic sounding biblical name, because then it makes it so personal and it makes it feel like this legit could be someone standing behind me and not necessarily someone who's going to like come out of the floorboards from hell below or something like that which actually i don't know what's creepier now that i say that out loud (laughs) (laughs) i think the other thing with astaroth as well it's a great name and it's so obviously made up like it's so obviously an act of creation by someone who's quite intelligent it feels like a work of fiction as a name Mm. and it's got too much credence to it Something like old Tom is the name of your neighbour whispering over the fence about something strange they heard. Feels like a piece of Chinese whispers. Apparently that was a really good answer. That was really great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, so, I mean, not to go totally dark side, but speaking of the hierarchy of demons, um, a discussion that Kate and I have had on the podcast and in general, especially um, in the past year, is just this concept that people might legitimately be rotten at their core. And is that the nature of humanity? Um, it's a really fun conversation. But this is what happens in America <laughs> during like a Trump election. Yeah, yeah, it's just a daily conversation that we have. But, you know, obviously the, a theme within the devil in the dark water is this concept of greed and, and how so many, if maybe not all the characters, really fall victim to their own greed when it comes to old Tom. And do you, did you, I don't know if you've thought about this, but do you think that's a representation of modern society or more of a representation of survival on a 1600s trade boat riddled with fear and superstition? No, I think it's a symptom of our psyches. Our psyches haven't changed a great deal since we evolved. And I think it's easy. Look, I'm not, I'm going to tell you, I'm obviously no Trump lover. Um, I'm no Boris Johnson lover. I am no extremist politics lover. But what they are doing is preying on a lot of people who've been adversely harmed by the 2008 economic recession, right? Lots of people, it's so far in the background of disasters for us that we've forgotten about it. But it fractured us. It fractures like since then, economies have boomed, but they've boomed for very very rich people Mm -hmm. um rich have got richer and poor have got poorer and people have been made incredibly desperate whether you know them whether you don't know them um and i think in that desperation it's always happens through history we look for something to believe in we look for something to blame for our misfortune in 1634 people blamed witches and you know the witch happened to be the crooked old woman who couldn't defend herself 
it happened to be we look for something you know these people 1634 they were terrified they didn't understand the way the world worked all they knew was that if their crop went bad in the field they would die of starvation or they wouldn't be able to sell it and therefore they would have no money so they wouldn't be able to plant the following winter if they set off on the road there was no guarantee they were going to get there because there was no law and order there was no one to help them on the journey likely brigands would get them and they would meet some bad fate everything was terrifying so they looked for certainty and the one thing we do as human beings is we tell ourselves stories we're brilliant at stories we invent stories to explain the world around us the greeks invented the you know they had the myths they had zeus they explained the weather that explained what was at the top of that massive mountain and why you should never try and climb it you shouldn't try and climb it because you would die but if you said there's a god up there and you shouldn't go near them that works better witches demons it comes from the same psychological frailty and the same psychological frailty comes from a need to survive it's a need to tell ourselves stories to understand the world and sort of have some certainty if you can implore god for your harvest that's absolutely brilliant. It gives you some certainty. If you can blame mm. the devil for a bad harvest, it gives you someone to blame. That makes you feel slightly better. It's consolation. I think we look at the world around us. The same thing's still happening. I think people are in a bad way. I think they've been battered around by life. I think they've been miseducated by a lot of people. I think some people just aren't very bright and they're being used. And I think it's it's really harsh what's happening because there's people who have come along to take advantage of it and tell them what they want to hear and use that psychological frailty that is we all have in common. So, sorry, long-winded way of answering your question, but yeah, I think we're exactly, almost exactly psychologically the same people we were in 1634. We've got a bit more education, but not all of us have a bit more education. But when we're desperate, we're desperate and we react in exactly the same way and we're ripe to be taken advantage of, whether that's by somebody telling us there's a demon behind it and we should burn that poor old woman over there or a politician saying it's all that mm-hmm. lady's fault at the front of the room and you should lock her up. It's all the same stuff. Yeah, people just can't handle, the. many people can't handle like the reality that it's random or it's bad luck yeah. or if it is, you know, if it is the, the elite rich, it's like, well, those people are untouchable. So give me someone closer to me that I can be mad at that is tangible to me. Um, but it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because I come from a working class town in the north of England and it's a poor place and it depends on um, chemical factories and warehouse jobs. The nature of our economy means that those jobs simply are going away. And that is just the evolution of the market. It's capitalism and all these other things, which you can't explain to someone who's been working in a warehouse for 30 years because they simply don't have a job anymore. Of course, somebody comes along and says, in our example, if we get Brexit done and we leave the EU, then you'll all get your jobs back. Well, what are they going to do? Like, they're not bad people. They're just... They don't, they can't, they shouldn't be expected to understand the nuances of that argument. What they should be doing is treat it with compassion and have a job, in which case they probably wouldn't be so easy to fall prey to what's been told to them. I think, yeah, I just, it's just, it's a yeah. really tough period in history for a lot of people, including ourselves. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about your job, writing, because I, I'm always curious with, with writers whether they approach actually sitting down to their computer or whatever device they're using with trepidation, with joy, with excitement? Like what, what is your mentality when you sit down before the page? Oh God, do I have to do this again? Oh Christ. (laughs) Uh, Answer the question or write? (laughs) (laughs) Write very much. Um, I am not naturally attuned to sitting down at a computer for eight hours a day. That's not really the way I've lived my life, and I find that incredibly hard to do. Um, that explains the books I write, because 
I need to find something entertaining to write every single day. I need to find something mm-hmm. that will excite me or challenge me or I will find difficult so I can throw the full weight of my head behind it and my thoughts and just like try and puzzle it out because that will entertain me because if I'm not entertained and this generally happens towards the end of a book because I do all the entertaining stuff I don't write chronologically first of all I should Mm. say um I write any bit that I fancy on the day I sit down decide what I'm going to write so what I end up doing is writing all the stuff I want to write for the first year and a half and then it's like you're meeting potatoes I leave all my I leave, sorry, all my potatoes for the final three months of, of writing. Um, and that's all the boring bits that I don't want to do. And I spend three months wading through exposition, basically. Um, and then, so I find it really, really, really tricky. And I do have to G myself up to do it. And it's, if I stop, if I take a day or two days off, I, that's a month. I might as well just acknowledge that I'm taking a month's break because I'll find it so hard to get back to. Yeah. Well, because yeah. I find writing falls into this concept that Catherine and I, there's a book in the U.S., I think, just called The the Joy Gap. And <laughs> it's it's that book is about uh, working out and how it you feel so good when you're done. And yet right in the you know 30 minutes before you do it, there's a huge joy gap where you can't conceive that you will feel good for doing this. And therefore, it, mm. it so many people fall Or even in. the first 30 minutes of writing or working out, you're still in the joy gap. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like after I've written, I have a piece of joy because it's like you've created something. And yet mm. the, the gap before writing, like there is that joy gap where I can't even conceive that it will make me feel good. That's how much I, for some reason, don't want to do it. And that's like an interesting part of the human brain is many things that make us feel rewarded, like working out, writing, certain other things. Mm. There's this huge joy gap from it. And I don't, it's a very weird psychological piece of the human brain because it's like, why shouldn't I be excited to write? Because on the back end of it, I feel rewarded. So it's like, why don't Mm. I carry that forward to the next day? But I never do. My joy gap lasts for about two years. I would suggest like <laughs> I it's really brutal because I don't want to I get asked a lot about writing and stuff when I go to events and I see like because people want to get published and it's still this career that a lot of people want and it's it's still very hard to get into and it's very hard and um, so you don't want to crush people's dreams by saying I'm the person who doesn't enjoy it because that's not quite entirely mm. true but for me the joy, the absolute joy is the book designed and on the shelf. That's the moment when I'm elated. And that takes me two years to get to. <laughs> Everything before that I find incredibly difficult. But then, so within that, I'm, yeah, as I say, I'm trying to entertain myself with the actual, what I'm creating and solving a particularly knotty plot problem. It's all kind of meta stuff. And then on every page, I want at least one beautiful piece of writing, like an actual line or a metaphor or um, an eloquent way of putting difficult concept that I can be pleased with. It's like, I don't know, it's like trying to mow a lawn and throw diamonds down as you do it. Like, I'm just trying to find <laughs> something each day that I can look at at the end of the day and show my wife and just be like, look, this is what I came up with today. And like, yeah. I'm really happy with that. But it's, it's very fleeting. And because I've just come out of Devil, it's only just come out. And now I'm planning book three. So I'm stirring again at that sort of mm. two-year period going into it. So you're probably not getting me at my most positive, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're always very intrigued by the submission process and the publication process. And 
Um, I, I currently have a novel out on submission and it's driving me insane. Mm. And I've just started writing a short story just to, I mean, that's the level of insanity I'm at. I will sit in front of a, <laughs> a blank computer to soothe myself because that's better than sitting and staring at my phone, waiting to hear from my lit agent. Um, and I just, I w- we would love to hear what was it like for you when you first submitted seven half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle? Like, you know, was it, did you, was it successful right away? Was it just horrible? Like w- what was that experience like? And then all the way through to publication. I was slightly lucky in the sense that I'd, although I'd always wanted to be published, I wanted to be an author, I should put it that way, I didn't have any concept of how publishing worked. I never took the trouble to work it out. So I managed to go through, because I think if I'd known how hard it was, I would never have started the book. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just that. It's an annoying feature of my personality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would have got started. So I was thankfully ignorant until I almost... I basically almost finished seven and a half deaths and that's when I started looking at well how do I just you know what do I do to put this on the shelf like who do I talk to about that almost like it was like a government department you know like getting a driving license I was kind of of that mind it was just like I assume I've got to go and talk to somebody and maybe pay a, pay a fee I assume let's see what happens <laughs> and then so how did it happen so I submitted it to five agents I had two rejections and three request to meet i met with one of the agents in the most soul destroying meeting (laughs) to this day that i've ever had and she told me that we met in a coffee shop she was like all right so you know there's there's potential in this i'm like oh that's good potential is good i said but what do you want it to be do you think it is where do you sorry where do you want it to sit on a bookshelf do you think it would be in the sci-fi section or the crime section and i was like well I, it's a crime book to me with sci-fi bits so you can put it whatever you want i said well bookshops are not going to accept that so you need to pick one you either make it a crime book and strip out the sci-fi or you make it a science fiction more science fiction book and you kind of push the the mystery back mm-hmm. and that was the worst advice anyone can ever give so like i walked out of that completely defeated thinking i'd spent two years writing this and at this point i should say we gave up, I'm talking about me and my wife here, we gave up a lot for me to write this book. Like we were, we lived in Dubai uh, before I started. We were in a 30th floor apartment overlooking the marina. We were travel journalists. Our job was to go on a holiday for two weeks of every month. Um, <laughs> we did that together a lot of months. We were paid well. I say we lived in Dubai, so we traveled. It was just beautiful. We lived in this wonderful, almost perfect life. And then I had the idea for seven and a half deaths and, I needed England for that. I needed the research, but I needed sort of the rain and the gloom and the caste system and scowling British faces. And (laughs) I needed to go and stay in these country houses and be around it. So I convinced her to come back and, you know, I quit my job and I ended up working. I would, I went freelance as a freelance journalist. I would take on as many pieces of work per week as it needed to pay my bills and to go for a drink with my friends, but then stop. And then I'd spend the rest of the week working on the book so we were we were skint. We had no money. I we took a we lived in a flat above a children's nursery, and I wrote to the smell of screaming children and nappies wafting up the stairs, uh, <laughs> diapers wafting up the stairs. So it wasn't very pleasant, and it was hard. And every year we'd be like, "So how long are we doing this for?" Because we couldn't do anything. We couldn't buy nice things. We couldn't go on any holidays. We were just 
earning enough money to live basically it's like another year another year another year and that went on for two and a half years and about a year into it i suddenly became convinced that i couldn't really pull it off and that the the novel was too high concept and it wasn't gelling and it wasn't going to work and i began to sort of break under the stress of that i could feel that heaping on top of me so it was, it was a horrible just awful experience and I managed to sort of crawl out. I mean, I basically limped out at the end of Seven Deaths. Like, I, by the end of it, I was basically done. So I went, and these agents get back, and that's the immediate confidence boost. And then you go and see this agent who's like, I don't want this book. I think you've made a massive mistake, and it's the last thing I needed to hear at that point. Yeah, oh, But thankfully, my other, another agent got in contact, and that was the agent I've got now, and he was just, he was wonderful. Not that I'm devastated to his face because he's the most evil human being who's ever been put on the planet because he's a literary agent. But he's, <laughs> he was pretty great. And he he got what the book was. He got what the book's flaws were, which I'd just begun to suspect. He understood the market he was selling it into. And we began to edit together to get it closer to that, to where he could take it to a publisher. So I went with him straight away, not the other meeting on the head. Um, then we worked for about a month just getting the manuscript up to snuff and then this this will elucidate the he's the most evil human being who was ever put on the planet argument he um, so were his I don't have to explain this but his agency the agency he works for is beneath a, a bookshop and the bookshop is also owned by the same person who owns the literary agency and the bookshop is very famous in London, and it's where a lot of the literary parties in London happen. So basically, it's the centre of the literary world to an extent around here, because lots of things happen there. And um, they were having a huge party. He said, like, you should come to this huge party. And this was before I'm published. The book's just gone out on submission. He's come to this huge party kind of on the end of the month or whatever it was. It's like, cool, that sounds good. I'll come to this huge party. And... Everyone was going to, it's agents and editors and or famous authors and all the people that you want to be a part of but are not a part of because your book is out on submission, it's a debut and blah, blah, blah. So he sends the book out on submission and he he's told me since that basically he gave them a deadline to respond to the submission, whether they were interested or not, and to put bids in on it or offers in. And it happened to be the date of the party. Mm. And that was just because the party was just in his head. That date was in his head because of the party, but he wasn't connecting to two things. So he gave them this date. Anyway, I go away. And as you've just said, I sat stirring at my email and my phone and like the weeks just crawl by and you're just dying and nobody's coming back and your sense of self-worth is just deflating with every week that passes. (laughs) Yeah. And you're just like, eventually you're just like on the floor. So this kept happening, kept happening, and it gets to three days before the party, and no one's got back to me, and nobody's interested in it, and nobody wants anything to do with it, and that's what I've convinced myself because I've not heard from my agent, and I've got to go to a party with all the people who I think have rejected the novel and don't want anything to do with it, and they're all around me, and I'm supposed to make chit-chat with them. So I ring them up, and I'm like, Has I can't, I can't go to this party, mate. Like, and he's like, why not? It's going to be great. It's like, because they're all going to be there like nobody wants this book and he's like what do you mean no one wants this book and I was like you, nobody you haven't called me and he's like oh no 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 we've got like four interested bidders yeah they're going to be at the party you're going to meet them at the party did I, did I not say that and he had just he, he just simply forgotten to told me now at this point he he genuinely genuinely reckons that he told me and I just missed it somewhere he sent me an email and I missed it he is but the worst day, person in the world that's <laughs> worst horrible. person in the world yeah <laughs> 
so I think my agent was just having a little bit of fun with me there. So um, we went then, um, we met these people, and they were all lovely, and we did the tour around the publishers, and there was a little bit of an auction, and then we went with Bloomsbury Raven, which is the publisher I'm with now. So, yeah, in the end, it was kind of um, self-created drama. It was actually relatively smooth and painless for me, and I, I know that's not everybody's story, so I'm incredibly lucky and privileged. So what do you, in your mind, what's the difference between like selling a book to an American audience versus a Mm. British audience? If there is one or if it even, if as the author, it's even something you concern yourself with. But like, what's the general vibe about that? I I don't concern myself with it at all. Um, I can't. I have no expertise and I don't know. I'm obviously I'm British. This accent is not put on for these like. (laughs) (laughs) um so i don't understand the american publishing market at all um so i don't worry too much about what's going on over there it's terrible it sounds my publishers in the u.s tell me to turn up for events and ask me to do things Mm -hmm. and i turn up and do things but they all the way through um seven and a half deaths things great opportunities would come up like i'll to to give you this point, when Seven After Death came out, it got a starred review in something Publishers Weekly, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't know what a starred review was. I thought it was a one star review. <laughs> so, I, so I, and this is a genuine honest statement. I was so baffled that they'd flagged up with the light a one star review that I was, I was raging. I thought like, this just feels <laughs> really unfair. Like, why do you want me to know this? And it turns out that it's a good thing. So, yes. even that, base level i don't understand the difference okay, all right the check understood <laughs> and Stuart, so, i noticed that you just joined instagram recently was that by any chance an american publishing publicist request a request for you to be on instagram i think they've gently requested it in the past i think it was just a um a lot of my uk publisher requested it as well and i said no so they managed to bully me into twitter <laughs> when seven deaths came out and I went on that for seven deaths. And then they've just, it's gently come up a lot over the years since that I should be on Instagram and I should just try that. And so I'm trying it out. I don't know if I'll, I'll stick to it, to be honest. I find it's too much input. There's too many, it's too much stuff going on. I don't yeah. know if I can keep up with it all. Welcome to the real dark water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, do you know what? I'm really lucky. I think the people who follow me generally seem to be, because I'm not, I don't, know how to get beyond my bubble necessarily which is obviously good and bad but everyone who follows me seems to be generally very nice and um i seem to have quite a nice time on there so when people are talking about twitter and insta being awful i don't get to see that side of it i have no doubt that it's absolutely true but i don't really i don't go and look for contrary opinions i'm not wading into arguments i never start bun fights on twitter <laughs> it's just not what I'm there for. for me it's a marketing tool um nothing personal yeah well, uh, at the end of the podcast, we have a few just like little short final questions that we like to ask. Um, one of them being, what book are you reading right now? If you, or what was the last book that you read? Uh, I just finished um, Will Dean's new novel, which is called The Last Thing to Burn, which I had an absolute great time with. That was really, really good. And I'm currently reading, I'm sort of halfway through Leave the World Behind, um, which is... I must be the only person in the world who doesn't know what that book's about because I'm seeing pop, rave reviews are popping up all around me and I'm aware that it's been turned into a film, but I don't know what it's about and it just it's creeping the hell out of me, but I don't know where it's going. So that's quite a, 
That's quite a good place to be. <laughs> That's worth looking into. Do you have a, a favorite book of all time? No. Uh, yeah, sort of The God of Small Things by Aranati Roy, mm. probably. Um, because that's a book I find something different about it every time I read it. And it's all about structure and it's all about the language and the the beauty of the writing, which are the two things that I really love in novels. But that's today. If you ask me in a week's right. time, it's something different. And do you have um, an author, either underrated author or maybe a a bit under the radar that you just wish the rest of the world knew about that you love so much? Um, No, I am so basic. I just like, I love... (laughs) You love Dan Brown, just say it, right? (laughs) Stephen King, Dan Brown, you know. (laughs) He is weaponized marginal talent and I I love that. Like I think that is like again I, that's just broken my own rule and i'm going to apologize for it immediately because i if you've written a book you've climbed everest and i should never slag off anyone's <laughs> climbed everest i feel that's <laughs> that's the worst snobbish thing you can possibly do and i feel terrible snobbish. but it's more the <laughs> yeah exactly it's a just awful thing to have said but i think it's more the sense that like he found a pattern that worked for him and a way of writing that he can do and he's just made billions out of it. And there's something astronomically brilliant about that more than the writing of that he does. Is probably what I was trying to say. Um, uh, no, I love David Mitchell, um, but I don't say he's underrated. That nobody knows. It's just I think I like. I would like to, if I could follow anyone's career with David Mitchell's, because he does whatever the f he wants with every single book, and nobody questions it. And yet he somehow manages to connect them up a little bit every time. I really, really love that. Ooh, I'm going to look him up. And and then the, the question that we have to ask everyone, this podcast is called Free Cookies. So, Stuart, <laughs> what is your favorite biscuit? Oh, uh, I love anything with white chocolate in it. So oh. I'd probably be, I would mm. probably go for a white chocolate chip cookie. Wow. But I, but I would, uh, I would. Would you be upset if there are dark chocolate or milk chocolate in it? We, or do you get that, emotional over that if it's not just white chocolate? Or? I would get an emotional over dark chocolate. I don't. What's the point? I don't understand what dark chocolate is for. Like that, is, <laughs> that, that is just chocolate that's gone off. That's a terrible thing. Where's to do the for. sugar in my chocolate? <laughs> what is that about? Who has got like polluting theories Listen, about chocolate? I'm drinking all this tea without sugar, so you can put it into my chocolate. Full <laughs> <laughs> yeah, circle. What we've done is we've taken something that was meant to be sweet and delicious and we've turned it into sour and disappointing. That is not, that's not what I want. I would basically, so, but, you know, like if you offer me a cookie and there's an opportunity for cake, I would go for the cake every single time. Okay. Fair All enough. Right. Fair enough. Free cake, we'll call this. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And we're so thrilled that Devil in Dark Water is the book club pick this week and we're so this excited month. this month this Sorry, month the whole month, month. <laughs> <laughs> and we're excited for our listeners thanks Mike <laughs> we're excited for our listeners to get to hear you and everything about it so thank you so much yeah this has been well, awesome thank you, thank you Stuart really appreciate you having me on thank you so much i'm sorry i rambled on no can <laughs> you can come ramble with us whenever you Never. want thank you <laughs> bye Stuart <laughs> alright bye All right, that'll do it for today's show. But before we wrap up, I don't, I wanted to mention this at the top of the show and I forgot to. I want to give a shout out to Nicole Cardoza, who dedicated 
listeners, you've listened to the episode that we did with her. And if you're like, who is this Nicole Cardoza? Please go back to this season and listen to her episode because she just launched her own podcast and it's called the Anti-Racism Daily Podcast with Nicole Cardoza. And she also has a fantastic daily newsletter that she sends out as well. So I highly recommend subscribing to her podcast, subscribing to her newsletter. This woman is genius. And if you enjoy our podcast, we didn't mention this at the top of the show, you can support the podcast, keep it ad-free, which we have done since the inception of the podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash free cookies and support the show on Patreon. That would be lovely. And if you are a supporter, I post a bunch of my recipes for y'all to cook at home and Kate posts stuff about her sneakers. Which you just (laughs) made it seem like it's inferior to your recipes. You did. (laughs) The way you said it was like, I do this and Kate does her sneakers. So that's some shit she does. Okay. (laughs) They're really cool sneakers, you guys. And next week, I will force us to talk about the sneakers I just built from scratch. That's true. You're probably surprised I didn't bring it up this week. I am a little surprised. Okay. You can rate and review this show. Or, I mean, if you want to rate and review other shows, you can do that as well. But (laughs) on Apple Podcasts, that's another way to support the show because it helps us find more listeners. The more it's rated, the more it's reviewed. You can follow us at Free Cookies Podcast on on Instagram or email (laughs) us at Gmail, FreeCookiesPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, the show is produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio, if you're looking for another fantastic podcast to listen to. And we want to give a shout out to Megan KH for the five-star review. Oatmeal Raisin All the Way Woohoo! is the highlight. You know what I've speaks. noticed is that there's a lot of people who have uh, rated and reviewed the show who support Oatmeal Raisin Cookies but people aren't willing to say it out loud on the show. I think it's one of those things that you do in secret. Do you think that's why their username is always something that is nebulous, that they'll never get back to them, yeah, that they actually like, like oatmeal cookies? NK4333777. <laughs> oatmeal raising cookies are the oatmeal best. But you'll life. never trace this because I don't want to be outed. <laughs> that's right. But I'm out and I'm proud. That's right. I love oatmeal raising cookies. Oatmeal raisin... No hatred towards cookies here. Okay. I don't know. I have, I have no comeback for that. You tried, though. And what? it's an improv, and you went, yes, and, and then... Yes, your, and. Your and went literally nowhere. And that's how we're going to end the show. Well, yes, and that's a mean thing to say. <laughs> I love you. Yes, but... <laughs>